Welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen. Are we, as a society, obsessed with sex and sexuality? I suspect that most of you hearing this, queer or not, have some idea where you fall on the Kinsey scale that goes from zero, totally straight, on one end, to six, flaming faggot or butchest of dykes, on the other. But do you have a clue of where you fall on another continuum, the asexual, allosexual one? My guest will explain allosexual shortly. But to put it crudely, this continuum has on one extreme end folks repulsed by the thought of sex to horny as hell on the other end, with a lot in between. I hadn't really considered this question before, but now I see how it can be liberated to consider and to see how societal pressures affect where we are on this spectrum just as they influence where we are on the Kinsey scale. My guest is science and technology journalist Angela Chen, who joins me to discuss topics in her debut book, ACE, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. It's been named one of 2020's best books by NPR, Electric Literature, and Them. Chen tells us that asexuality is the A in LGBTQIA, but we don't hear about asexuality much. Why not? In ACE, Chen argues that asexuality is rarely talked about because our society operates under compulsory sexuality, which she defines as a set of assumptions and behaviors that support the idea that every normal person is sexual, that not wanting socially approved sex is unnatural and wrong, and that people that don't care about sexuality are missing out on an utterly necessary experience. She explores how misconceptions about or generally overlooking asexuality hurts us all. ACE is not only an asexuality 101, it's also a commentary on the relationship between sex, power, and politics in our culture, and it includes Chen's personal path to discovering and exploring her own asexuality. Angela Chen, congratulations on your book and the praise for it, and welcome to Out in the Bay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So you're going to start off uh, giving us a flavor of the book by reading some of the prologue, right? Absolutely, and this is... A little more personal, it's about my experience realizing I was ace. Thanks. I let Jane pick the restaurant, since I was in Silver Spring for the day anyway, and she had driven down from Baltimore to see me. Those who knew us both liked to joke that we were the same person, bookish, interested in neuroscience, and she had even cut her hair short after I did. But it was our differences that interested me now. I have a question for you, I said, as soon as we settled into our booth at the Burmese place she had chosen. What does sexual attraction feel like? Jane shifted in her seat. We were both 24. She was a virgin who had never had a boyfriend while I was in the middle of my second serious relationship. My boyfriends enjoyed sex, as did I, and I considered myself lucky to have such an uncomplicated sexual history. Yet there I was, asking my friend what sexual attraction felt like from the inside. I wanted a blueprint, something I might lay side by side with my own experience to see where they matched up and where they diverged. I don't mean what it feels like when you think someone is good-looking, I continued. I knew how that felt. Or what it feels like to want a relationship with someone, or to love them. I knew that feeling, too. I had known it so deeply that it had shamed me. I didn't have a problem becoming physically aroused during sex, and I was not naive enough to believe that physical desire was the only reason to have sex. People had sex to feel closer to their partners, or better about themselves, to counteract boredom, and to distract from their problems. What I didn't know was what it felt like to want sex without a specific person in mind, to think about sex at all when I was alone. 
to feel any physical urge for sex distinct from wanting the emotional intimacy it created. I had more sexual experience than Jane, but she was the one who spoke openly of lust and libido. Meanwhile, the language of sexual desire did not quite make sense to me. Jane took a bite of tea leaf salad, then tapped her fork against her plate. I want to be close to someone, physically, even if they're just a stranger, she said. I get jittery. I start fiddling with things. I feel warmer. She stumbled as she continued, then apologized because her answer was not particularly precise. I don't know, she said. It's just a feeling. But it was answer enough. Jane's cautious description revealed that what I'd passed on as sexual attraction, even to myself, was something else entirely. Aesthetic appreciation. A desire for emotional and physical closeness. A certain possessiveness. All were related to sexual attraction. Components I could build upon and amplify it, but they were not the same as sexual attraction itself. Is this just an intellectual exercise? Jane asked. No. Thank you, Angela. So your book is really, it's really thought-provoking and, and also deeply personal. After spending so much of your career writing about science and technology, how did you come to write this book? The honest answer is that I realized I was ace about the time I was 24, you know, as related in the prologue that I just read. And as I was learning more about what asexuality was, realizing that I'd completely misunderstood it, I was coming across all of these concepts and this way of looking at the world that I thought was really valuable and that seemed to be hidden knowledge. You know, it was, some, it was the kind of knowledge you had to go find. It wasn't something that was just around. It was not common. And because I was a journalist, even though I wasn't necessarily a sex and relationships journalist, I thought that I had the skill set to do something about that. So it was really this confluence of personal interest and having the right set of professional skills. What was it like to switch from writing about science in a pretty technical way, I suppose? I don't know, because I haven't read your science journalism. But what was it like to start writing about your own experience with your sexuality, with your asexuality? I think that part of it was difficult for me. I've written essays before, but I don't write about sexuality that often. And I think it's this funny paradox that happens for people who are asexual, because Almost by definition, sexuality is not a big part of our lives. You know, it's not that important to us. But because it's so expected that it's supposed to be, you know, we have to always kind of be talking about something that doesn't even matter that much. We have to, you know, be justifying why something doesn't matter. And so even though I've written essays before, I'd never written about this, but I had to. And I had to get over my instincts as a pretty private person in order to write the more memoristic parts of the book. So in ACE, you write that there are many myths and misconceptions around asexuality, most of which, or many of which, prevent people from recognizing where they are on the spectrum. So tell us about some of these misperceptions. What is asexuality and what is it not? So the first myth is that people think that it's the same as celibacy, but it's not. Celibacy is a behavior, right? Asexuality is about the experience of sexual attraction. You can be celibate you know, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, but you can still experience sexual attraction. So asexuality is the lack of sexual attraction, not the lack of actually having sex because some ace people have sex. A much more subtle misconception is that asexuality means that you can't enjoy sex or that you're always repulsed by it. When I was 14, I actually came across the term asexual and I thought it was interesting, but I thought there was no way it could apply to me. You know, I hadn't had sex yet, not at 14, but I was, I, it was interesting to me. I thought that I one day would have it. I was very interested in romance. 
And so I always use this food metaphor that I don't love, but I think it's the point across, which is that, you know, many people have food that they crave. And then many people have foods that they are repulsed by, like broccoli or whatnot. And then there are foods, you know, maybe like crackers. You're not repulsed by it. You're not, you don't crave it either, but maybe it reminds you of your childhood home. And so you eat it for that reason. You know, there's so many emotional reasons to eat food or to have sex. And when it comes to asexuality, I think many people don't realize they're ace because we don't talk about the different types of desire enough. A lot of times, especially after publishing a book, I'll talk to people and they'll say, oh, I thought I couldn't be ace because, you know, I'm in a relationship. I don't have any, quote, sexual problems. But now I'm realizing I don't experience sexual attraction. All I ever want is, you know, sex with this one person. And it's only ever for various emotional reasons or for the sake of the relationship. Early on in the book, you talk about your primary relationship you had with, uh, who's identified in the book as Henry, I suppose names are changed, but can you tell us a little bit about that and how your asexuality fit into that relationship eventually not working? Absolutely. So Henry and I met when we were in college and a lot of the reason it didn't work out was because we were young and, you know, all of that. And at one point, because he was going to go to grad school in a place that was far away from where we then lived, he pushed for this long distance open relationship. And I should have said, no, I just don't think I was mature enough to be able to deal with it. But, you know, I was afraid of losing him. And so I said, yes. And I had so much fear around that. And the fear made me very cruel. And I think the cruelty and the immaturities of that is what made us not work out. And of course, you know, you don't have to be asexual to be jealous and to be possessive. But for years afterward, there was a part of me that felt, you know, why, why did I act like that? I don't think it was just that I was jealous. You know, I think there was something else. And later, once I realized I was ace, I think that was part of the puzzle for me because Henry would talk all the time about how, you know, everyone's always sexually attracted to everyone else. And I didn't understand what he meant because I only wanted to sleep with someone when I was already in love with them, when I was already ready to change my life for them. So if you're imagining that when someone is saying, oh, everyone is always attracted to someone else, it becomes far, far more threatening and more and more frightening. The key, the, the light bulb moment was when I was talking to a friend years later about this and he was like, oh, I just don't understand why you were so jealous. You know, it's just it's just attraction. It's just a feeling. Sure, you feel it, but then you deal with it. It's not some horrible thing. Haven't you experienced that before? And I was like, no, I, I have not experienced just attraction. And so that was the moment that made me start thinking more about whether I was what I thought I was, which was an allosexual woman, and also answer some questions about that first relationship that had been haunting me for a while. Um, hold on to that thought about allosexual because I said at the end during the intro that I'd have you explain it. But uh, what you just said about Henry uh, makes me think about the um, the challenges that a lot of people have when one person in a relationship wants it to be more open than the other one does, and when or perhaps when there's just some people are much more jealous, let's just say for shorthand, than others are, and and it makes me wonder based on what you're talking about and what your relationship with Henry was, how much of that has to do with some people for sex, it's much more about emotions, whereas for the other person, it's just sex or it's about the physical attraction. 
do you think that plays into it and that there's, you know, even within the allosexual world, there are people who are much more, the emotions matter much more than the physical attraction itself? Oh, absolutely. You know, I've talked to my friends about sex all the time. And it's so clear that, you know, for every gender, there's some people who they can't really decouple sex and romance and love, and they take it very personally. And some people they just can and they and they're just like, it's just a physical thing for me. And so I don't think this is an ace question or issue at all. I see it in my friends who are ace and see my friends who are who are not ace. I think it's just for a lot of people who might be ace and they don't know it they don't realize how different their experience might be from someone because like i said we don't really or at least most people i know don't really talk about desire in very specific ways you know in very bodily embodied ways and so when we talk about oh you're sexually attracted to someone it's very easy to confuse what that actually means and the various components of that because there are many components to any kind of attraction Let's talk about attraction in a moment. <laughs> first, the many types of attraction. Uh, first, I want to ask you uh, again, what's, what is allosexual? Allosexual essentially means someone who's not asexual. And, you know, it is a spectrum because, you know, just like we no longer really have the binary of, you know, straight and gay, there, people can be at various places. But, you know, to keep it simple, you can be ace or you can be allo. And those are the words that are accepted in the community. Okay, very good. And ace is just the sort of shorthand nickname for asexual. Yes. Right? Okay. You're hearing Out in the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen speaking with Angela Chen, author of Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. Chen is a science and technology journalist and was previously a staff reporter at the Wall Street Journal, Vox Media's The Verge, and MIT Technology Review. Ace, her first book was named one of 2020's best books by NPR, Electric Literature, and Them. So in the book, you break down attraction into many different categories, some of which are totally unrelated to sexual attraction and uh, some that are. But so can you describe some of the different ways that people are attracted to one another? Absolutely. So sexual attraction is the main one that most people know about. And one thing that aces do is we separate sexual attraction and romantic attraction because it, you know, by definition, we are asexual, right? But many people who are ace also experience romantic attraction and you want to date, you know, someone of the same gender or the opposite gender. So you can be asexual and homoromantic, for example, or asexual and heteromantic, panromantic, so on. And just as there's this ace spectrum we talked about, which includes people who are gray asexual or demisexual, people can experience different amounts of romantic attraction too. You know, some people experience a lot of romantic attraction. Some people don't. And some people experience very little, which is called aromanticism. So that's one thing. And then the other main category that aces talk about is aesthetic attraction. And the way I usually explain this is for someone, let's just say a straight woman, you know, you, you may not be sexually attracted to any other women, but you might still find one woman more your type than the other. You know, just kind of the idea of, you know, finding someone beautiful, even if that doesn't sexually motivate you to want to have sex with them. You mentioned in there gray sexual, I believe, and demisexual. What do those mean? So gray sexual is kind of a catch-all term for people who are somewhere on the A spectrum. You know, maybe they experience sexual attraction, but not that often, or maybe they don't experience it that strongly. And then demisexual is people who 
can't experience or don't experience sexual attraction unless there's this emotional bond. And I think it's a very misunderstood and stigmatized word because people usually be like, oh, you know, of course sex is better if you like them. I too prefer to have sex with people that I like. But it's not about preference. The way someone explained it to me is, you know, I can go into a bar and have sex with anyone I want in the bar, but I can't just feel sexually attracted to a stranger, even if I go home with them. And I think that's the key distinction that many people don't understand about what demisexuality is. Mm -hmm. So since this is a a queer show, how does, how do you think asexuality or knowing about asexuality can help inform LGBTQ people about how they might act or relate differently in the world? Asexuality and romanticism both challenge these ideas that you have to feel sexual attraction, you have to have sex. Sex is such an important part of life. And it's not saying that none of these, that sex cannot be great and important part of life. It's saying that sometimes there can be sexual pressure. There can be, you know, a sense that I have to have sex to prove that I'm an exciting person, to have some kind of status, to show that people want me. And aces are really good at pointing that out and showing just creating more choice. You know, it's not saying you should feel ashamed to have sex. It's saying, what are the reasons to do this? You know, do you really, do you, is this what you really want to do? How could life be different? Is there something else you want? And especially when it comes to relationships, you know, people who are aromantic talk often about how it's so clear that romantic partnership is considered so vital to the point where if you're aromantic, people will think you are a sociopath or people will think that you're cold or don't have a heart. And I think that using the aromantic lens can really make us think more about the way we think about love and different types of relationships and what types are elevated perhaps unfairly over others. Right. I think a big concept in the book is compulsory sexuality. If you could describe that a little bit, but the way I, the way I interpret that is that society expects us to have sex and expects that Um, sex is valued over other types of relationships, even though, you know, on the one hand, we're sort of puritanical. On the other hand, we sell everything under the sun with sex. Yeah, you know, the world is big. And of course, the puritanical anti-sex part of the world is definitely there. I would never want to minimize that. But compulsory sexuality is present in so many, in so many places, you know, like in therapy, if you have a, um, if you have a low sex drive or don't experience sexual attraction, people will tell you, oh, this is a medical problem. This is something that you need to get fixed with hormones. You need to you know, uncover whatever it is that made you this way and you need to fix it. One thing is that many people who are ace often feel very infantilized um, because there's this idea that sexuality is what makes you an adult. So many coming of age movies and books, right, have that moment of, you know, sexual discovery. So if that never comes for you, then many people can feel like there's something wrong with me. I have talked to, you know, people who are, who talk about how they feel like there's a lot of compulsory sexuality in various queer subcultures. You know, I've talked to men who are gay and ace and say that they often felt very alienated. You know, there's so many sexual stereotypes and assumptions tied with gender, for men who are ace, there's often this idea that they're not really men. You know, if they don't want to be out there pursuing, particularly, you know, women, but just out there aggressive and lusty. And for women, I think traditionally the idea has been that, you know, women are kind of sexually indifferent anyway. But now that, you know, we have a lot of sex positive feminist activism, sometimes there's this idea that, oh, am I 
am I actually ace or am I just repressed? And there's a lot of going around in circles around that. So I think aces are mm-hmm. very sensitive to these and we notice them a lot. And one thing that I always think is important is that these questions are not necessarily only relevant to being ace. You know, maybe you're not ace, but you can still feel sexual pressure. You can still feel alienated. You know, you can still feel, you know, confused about how much sexual desire is healthy. You can still not know how to negotiate sexual desires in relationships where people, you know, might have a mismatch. Right. When you mentioned a while ago, people uh, feeling uh, sick or broken, uh, I did notice in the book that there's that, and then this sort of surprised me that uh, it's actually um, asexuality is in this in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, if I've got that right, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So it's actually still considered a an illness or sickness? It's a little bit nuanced. So I'm using, in the book, I use the old term, hypoactive sexual desire disorder. In the most recent one, I think they split it into like male and female um, versions. But it is still in there. And I think the diagnostic essentially sounds like what asexuality is. Um, Talking about not um, really having, not being sexually motivated, not having sexual fantasies. The, The thing is, in... Um, a few years ago, the DSM added this asexual exception. So they essentially said, you know, if someone identifies as asexual, then you shouldn't diagnose that diagnose them with this disorder. So I'm glad that we have that. But to me, I still think it just feels like my mind has to go in circles. So it's like if someone identifies as ace, then they don't have the disorder, but they can be the exact same person. And maybe they don't know what asexuality is. And then they do have a disorder. You know, yeah, yeah, it's. I think the example I gave in the book is, you know, as I'm sure you probably know, homosexuality was also in the DSM for a very long time, right? Right, and so the parallel would be if someone identifies as gay, then they don't have a psychiatric disorder. If they don't identify as gay, then they do have a psychiatric disorder, and that makes no sense. It's not. There's nothing wrong with it, regardless of how you happen to identify, and that's how I think about it. But it is, yeah, it's nuanced, but it's not where I would like it to be. I think. There's an example, I think, towards the end of the book about a three-parent arrangement where there is a man in a relationship of some sort and raising a child of a heterosexual couple. Is that correct? Yeah, it is It is correct. So the man is David Jay, who is asexual, and he is co-parenting with this heterosexual couple, and he is also has also formally legally adopted their child. So just to be clear, they're he's not romantically involved with the other couple that they're co-parents. The couple are just romantically involved with each other, but he is a parent to the daughter just as, just as much. Right. And so, and, and, and he's asexual. Yes. And so, and I think you know, the point of this is that asexuality can encourage us to be more creative in relationships. So it's possible to have sex without kids. It's also possible to have kids without sex. And in this case, he's found a way to do that. Exactly. And I really think that, that is what asexuality brings. I think that people who are ace, you know, are very different in many ways, but we don't, we relate to the world differently because sexuality um, is not a huge part of it. And because for everyone else, sexuality is a big part of it. I think it just forces you to be creative. You know, I think that is a theme within asexuality. I think that is a theme with being queer in that you can't just say, okay, I'm I am going to live my life exactly the same way that everyone else can, because for some reason, maybe it's more difficult for you to. So you just spend a lot more time thinking, what kind of relationship do I really want? Even if it doesn't look like, you know, any archetypes or any examples that I see, do I want kids and how do I want them? Do I want relationships and how can I negotiate them? 
I, a lot of aces, you know, will tell me about feeling frustrated because there's many challenges to being ace, but they'll also say, I think it's made me a better friend. It's made me more thoughtful. It's made me more, um, think critically and more creative about how I want to live my life. So, and I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're hearing Out in the Bay, Queer Radio from San Francisco. I'm Eric Jansen speaking with Angela Chen, author of Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. Chen is a science and technology journalist and was previously a staff reporter at the Wall Street Journal, Vox Media's The Verge, and MIT Technology Review. Valentine's Day is just around the corner. <laughs> Do you find that that uh, pressure, which I certainly I think a lot of people find around Valentine's Day, do you find that it brings up even more horror or pressure for aces and aromantic people than for brothers? I think for aromantic people to a certain extent, because, you know, you don't have to be aromantic to feel like you said, you know, oh, Valentine's Day. Again, it's a Hallmark holiday. But if you know you're aromantic, then I think it can maybe be even more alienating. And I think there are a lot of ace people who are not aromantic, who would like romantic relationships, but sometimes being ace can make that harder. And so I think maybe that can bring up some sensitive feelings. But like I said, Valentine's Day brings up mixed feelings for all kinds of people. Okay, one last thing I want to ask. I'm just, we started this off saying that ACE is the A in LGBTQA. So I'm curious to know how how ACE fits under that queer umbrella, that queer alphabet soup of LGBTQIA. Yeah. To me, I mean, first of all, like I should say, a lot of ACEs are gay, a lot of ACEs are trans and so on. But even despite that, I think there is still a discussion, you know, if you're heteromantic and you're asexual, are you, should you be considered queer or not? And I've always come down strongly on thinking that you are, because even if you're heteroromantic, you are just not heterosexual. And we talked about compulsory sexuality and all the pressures that come with that. And even if you are romantically attracted to someone of the opposite gender, you still are outside hetero, you know, heterosexual norms and a heteronormative life. And you still, you know, experience all of these pressures. So that's my position there. Yeah, well, absolutely. I can see that. I mean, there's certain, um, it's a certain, um, shall we say, outsider status outside of the mainstream in some way or other. Do you want to read this? Uh, you had one more short reading from the end of the book, right? I did. It is very short, and I will read it now. Adrian Rich wrote that compulsory heterosexuality rendered lesbian possibility invisible. It made lesbian possibility an engulfed continent that rises frequently to view from time to time, only to be, become submerged again. It will take courage for straight feminists to question the natural stage of heterosexuality, but Rich promises that the rewards will be great. A freeing up of thinking, the exploring of new paths, the shattering of another great silence, new clarity in personal relationships. These are also the rewards of working toward ace liberation, because compulsory anything is the opposite of freedom. Ace liberation is a complicated term. Asexuality is not inherently politically progressive. Not everyone who is asexual identifies as politically progressive, and that does not make their asexuality any less legitimate. But the goals of the ACE movement are progressive, and the potential of the ACE movement is greater than ACEs becoming more visible in the culture, and more important than ACEs proving that, except for this one thing, we're just like everyone else. As CJ Chase and the activist had said, ACEs push the envelope. Once it is okay for ACEs to never have sex, it becomes more acceptable for everyone else who isn't ACE too. Ace liberation will help everyone. That's Angela Chen reading from her book, Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. 
Angela, thank you so much. The the uh, book is really an eye opener, and I hope a lot of people get a lot out of it. Where can readers find the book? I think it should be available, you know, local independent bookstore, Amazon.com. Usually, wherever you know books are sold. And we'll have links on our website too, outinthebay.org. You've been listening to Out in the Bay. My guest this half hour was science journalist Angela Chen, author of the new book Ace: What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. To learn more about Angela Chen, check out our website, outinthebay.org, where we'll post links about Angela and her book, Ace. That's outinthebay.org, where you can also hear this week's show, many past shows, and share them with friends, and sign up for our weekly email newsletter, and subscribe to Out in the Bay via Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. Please also consider making a donation to help us keep bringing queer air to your ears. Just hit the donate tab on any page at outinthebay.org. On that note, a big thanks to Richard and Brad on the peninsula for their generous donations over the past year. They hope this public acknowledgement might encourage others to donate if you're able to during this challenging time. Your donations, big or small, truly make a difference and keep us going. We'll thank you by name on the air only if you'd like us to. Also, you could send kind comments like we got this week from a regular listener in Portugal. You can write to us at outinthebaysf at gmail.com. That's outinthebaysf at gmail.com. We'd love to know where you are listening to us, what you like and what you don't like. This week's show was produced by Kedra Klang. Thanks, Kendra and edited by the newest member of our team, Porfirio Rangel. Thanks, Porfirio, and welcome. Our theme music was written and performed by Holly Mead. Thanks, Holly. Thanks to KALW 91.7 FM and San Francisco Public Press and its radio station, KSFP 102.5 FM. I'm Eric Jansen. Thank you for joining us out in the Bay. Thank you.